To ship, of course. Time again for the Ship Show, the podcast where we discuss build engineering, DevOps release management, and everything in between. I'm your host, Paul Reed, Sober Build Eng on Twitter and at SoberBuildEngineer.com, who's with me for, wow, what is it, episode 37? Oh, yes. Numbers. How many numbers? Who's with us? This is Sasha. I'm at Sasha underscore D on Twitter and uh, BrighterRedhead.com. And this is Seth at She's Plus on Twitter. And this is Yusuf uh, at Build Scientist on Twitter. How's everyone doing? No one can talk about the weather. Uh, we talk about that every <laughs> opening. You don't want to hear about my drive home on ice for three hours yesterday from Iowa? It was oh, horrible. That, 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 that does sound pretty <laughs> so horrible. Well, instead, if you don't want to talk about the weather, how are you, Paul? I was gone for a week in Vegas and my head hurts and my wallet hurts. But I had fun. That sounds right. Yeah. Does, yeah your no, soul, I, does your soul hurt as well? A little bit. A little bit. Okay. But just a little bit. Yeah, no, I was I was there presenting uh, at Ping 14, the IT and ITSM conference, and uh, it was very interesting. I think the most interesting thing about it actually was we're all talking about kind of the same topic, but they're approaching it from IT perspective, like the IT side of things, which is actually slightly different than the ops side of things, and of course the, different than the developer side of things. So it was just interesting that they were using different vocabulary for things that we, we're all talking about. So it was just kind of nice to peer into their world and see how you know hardcore IT organizations look at things. And oh, actually, the other interesting thing, I, I actually tweeted about this. They have a, a IT Innovator of the Year award or something like that, but all of the people that were up for that award were, worked in healthcare, you know, IT supporting healthcare. So I thought that was an interesting demographic note. <laughs> Tonight we're going to be talking about self-service tools and configuration management and how that all fits together. We're going to be discussing some questions that often come up when we talk about self-service. But first up, of course, news and views. So the first news item tonight is Apple pushing out a security fix for iOS 7 without mentioning what it patches, which was interesting. I Did you guys see this? Because I, I was traveling. Again, I was traveling, so I only saw parts of it. And there were a couple of things that I saw that I read that I that were interesting but I think, Yusuf, you drummed up this... this yeah, it's, it's kind of all over the, the various news sites. Yeah, I saw it. I thought it was kind of an interesting... Well, two things that I found interesting. One, that Apple didn't really want to talk about it. And then, I guess, when other sites were sort of uh, discussing the bug, the whole uh, the whole idea that I guess there's still some people writing code using the go-to statement, which... I thought it was bad, but I'm not a C programmer, so... So the, the thing I always hear about the go-to stuff is that it's not... You know, there's that article that, what is it, go-to considered harmful, uh, which was written by Dijkstra, I think, back in the day, like in the 60s or 70s, or maybe early 80s. Anyway. <laughs> in the 60s. Dijk, Dijkstra basically is timeless, is what he's getting at. Actually, yes. <laughs> yeah. But no, you see go-tos all throughout the Linux kernel. I mean, so I think there are certain applications, and OpenSSL has also been around for like ever. So I think there's just certain applications where go-tos, I mean, you know, if you want it to actually compile down to a jump somewhere is really easy to do. Well, the, but the, the thing they did complain about was a lack of braces, right? Yeah, so, that was, that was, that, that yeah. was the big one, was the lack of braces. And then they also, it was that it doesn't show up in W all if the, the bug wouldn't, wouldn't show up, but it does show up if you use W unreachable code. Oh. Um, and so it was very subtle, like it, also a subtle test, like compiler validation. Right, right, right. Because everybody can 
can well most people if if <laughs> most people compile with W all right um, at least on release builds or something. If you, and but, even like I'm not I'm not master C programmer, but you look at it and you're like, oh, I see what you did there. Like it's a very right. obvious like right. you know it's going well, to always execute and skip the next validation. And it, if you're reading it though close enough to you're looking at it close enough. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If you look at it close, enough, I'm sure the person who wrote it just didn't think anything of it. Like it was right at the time. So yeah, it's a very just like very interesting and subtle convert. I think compiler bugs. It's maybe not using go tos, but how it how it basically completely broke everything, and you know there's no test to to catch this. So the other thing that I and again I skimmed this, but the other thing that I thought I read was that this bug reap like they had fixed this bug and then it had reappeared, or or this was a bug that is not in older versions. I mean, uh, it, right, it wasn't. It wasn't. In, yeah, it certainly wasn't in older versions. It definitely in ten uh, OS X ten nine one, and it was in the iOS. They they patched iOS. They haven't patched OS ten yet, which is also interesting. Yeah, but so I thought I read somewhere that they had patched this once and then somehow it got reverted. And, and what's interesting about the bug, though, if you look at the source code, basically the bug is they've got a couple of uh, a repeated go-to-fail. So the go-to-fail, even though it's indented, always executes. That looks suspiciously like a merge. Yeah, that right? would be... That would be great if it was a merge mistake. I could just imagine somebody basically like losing their job over a merge mistake. Well, yeah, I don't know about. I mean, yeah, that would that's be a big. I mean, well, this is. This is a, I mean, it's not as much that it would be that person's fault as much as it is Apple can be a cruel mistress if it wanted to be and just be like, you are. <laughs> I forsake you. You're voted off the island. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, but I could totally see that if you had, you know, a merge conflict marker and the merge was basically maybe different white space but the same statement and somehow they didn't delete the, the repeated line. So they had two go-to fails and one always gets executed. I could totally see that. Yeah, it's just, it's just, you're right. It's, it's, you see, you're like, oh, man, like. Yeah. <laughs> Forehead. Yeah, right, baseball. right, yeah. Apply, yeah. apply forehead to desk. And yeah, yeah. Repeat. Yeah, this is uh, I, I, this article is actually very detailed in the analysis, so definitely yeah. read it. And, it, and they gave you a good little, you could go actually go hit their site and, and test it. So you, you oh, yeah. So you can feel bad about it. If you're still yeah. using iOS 6, you will never get that fixed. <laughs> Well, yeah, or, I mean, but, like, my my laptop is, you know, at this point vulnerable, and it makes the point that your browsers aren't necessarily Chrome and Firefox, but Safari, it's, if anyone's using Safari, if anyone's using anything that uses the secure transport mechanism... Not as secure as you think. No, because, you know what? Why 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 bother checking certificates? Yeah. That's fine. That's fine. Uh, I'm just going to start going in, around to bars in Austin saying I'm you, to... <laughs> It's the same thing. <laughs> I've got a certificate. It's probably fine. <laughs> yeah, it's probably fine. Next up, actually, related to software updates, we have an article from uh, Technology Review talking about why your car won't get remote software updates anytime soon. This is interesting. Uh, I guess Toyota recently recalled 2 million cars because it was a software fix, but they didn't do any over-the-air updates like Tesla Motors does. And, of course, they make the comparison because everybody's used to their phone doing over-the-air updates, but then they called out Tesla Motors because they are actually doing uh over-the-air updates, but then the article kind of goes into a few reasons, and the main reason, which, you know, I'm I'm big into this, is, like, the safety reason, but there was a little tidbit about the dealers really don't like over-the-air updates either, because when you have to come into their shop, they can, you know, oh, your oil is down, or oh, your other service that we need to, they can kind of upsell these recalls. Well, um, yeah, they can, they can upsell them, but also it's expensive for the dealership, just because right, they have to... to process they, all of them, yeah. Well, they have to, and for a lot of these, if it's a problem, they have to do it for free. Right. So 
you know, well, I don't know that I want my card remotely updated by anything. Thank you. Well, no, I'm not, I'm not, I don't I'm not even know that, that I want it possible for somebody to remotely update my car. Just well, imagine, so, like, I mean, the things that could go wrong with that. Yeah, so you know what's interesting about that is every time, like, there's a DEF CON, there's, like, for the last few years, two or three years, there's been a talk on all those keyless entry systems are totally easy to hack. A lot of the, like, automatic in-car computers and devices are trivial to hack. They didn't think at all about the security. It seems like Tesla has enough technology smarts to do that right, to, like, sign updates and check that stuff and take the body of knowledge around, like, there's a lot of research and into, it, like... And people still find ways to exploit things. And that's all you need well, is, like, no, no, the lawsuit of a century no, no, uh, no, when I your car fails and you die. I totally agree with you. I'm just saying I think Tesla is actually at least paying attention to the security, whereas Ford and Toyota and all those other people, year after year at DEF CON, they are slammed with like you're not oh, even yeah, checking. Okay. Yeah, you're not, you're not even yeah. doing the minimum security practice. What's security? And, yeah, exactly. Cars, like, cars are are actually real. I mean, really. I mean, remote updating is one thing, but if you if you have access to the car, you don't even have to have the keys for it. You can actually pop in on, on at least on the on Volkswagen Audis have the special cable, but they're all whole host of different ones. You can you can reflash the ECU and do all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's it's really easy, even if you're not doing. Even if, I mean, you could do the remote unlock hack, unlock the car and then get in and basically reflash the ECU. It, it's not as exciting as it sounds because you don't get to necessarily like turn the car into, it's, it's not an, as evil villain as it seems because you could do things like enrich their fuel mixture, which is really malicious. Well, no, this, this said just that this is something that was about related to braking or something. Yeah, that was weird that the software update, a lot of the, like, that, that one kind of scared me because usually the ECUs have a lot of, well, they weren't thinking about security. There's a lot of, like, safety and, like, there are certain, you know, there are multiple systems that kind of have to fail for you to be actually be put in catastrophic danger. Do we need to talk about airplane crashes, Seth? Um, you uh, know, if, if, Paul, if you you want to talk about airplane crashes, I can I can grab a drink. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, please. No, I need like 10 drinks before we have to start talking about airplane crashes. Let me be passed out first. <laughs> all right. I don't want to know. I have to be on planes all the time. Yeah, yeah, seriously. I never seriously. want to see your instrument rated talk ever again. <laughs> Actually, I updated it for the talk I just gave. It's now longer and with more plane crashes. Okay, well, I, you know what? I came for moral support for the first one, and that's it. I'm just going to tell everybody else that it's great, and they should totally see it, but holy crap, I don't want anything to do with it. Next up, we actually have some somber news. The uh, creator of Rake, Jim Ryrich, passed away. We'll link to the story in the show notes. I guess he'd, he'd been working on Rake for a long time, and he had uh, committed within 24 hours uh, before he passed. And so we'll link to the, the his last commit on GitHub. A lot of people have been uh, leaving nice messages there, which I'm sure his family appreciates. Uh, but I w- we wanted to mention it because Rake is often used for a lot of the tests we work on, and he will be greatly missed. And and then finally up, we have news uh, that, and this is not really news at this point, but uh, WhatsApp was purchased for what, fifteen billion? What it was? Uh, Nineteen billion, as I. Nineteen guess. billion in cash and stock. Um, and uh, Seth, you wanted us to mention this because little known, like it's like surprise Erlang. Yeah, no, well everyone, everyone's always like surprise Erlang. But yeah, it's they they've they've given talks at Erlang Factor in years past, and that's kind of one of their what they've pushed is one of the things they're able to leverage. They're also not just Erlang, they're also free BSD. So oh. shout out to to kind of like to the BSD, uh, no, yeah. 
I wasn't gonna say weird technologies, but kind of like small, you know, smaller groups are you know using these. I know I know a lot of people are running Erlang and FreeBSD, but then again, I hang out in those circles of strange people. Yes, yes, you do. You also mentioned, which I thought was funny, where we were talking about this before the show, that uh, after the big announcement and people saw the dollar signs, that was oh, when yeah. like the Erlang forums blew up, and then people well, were like, like, "Oh, maybe I should have my app in Erlang." Yeah. Everyone, well, everyone, it gets that like, oh, maybe I should, you know, maybe I should do this thing, and it's just, it's always kind of silly because there are a lot of people. I mean, choose our like, you know, like any language, choose it for the right reasons, and don't do it because it's a fad. But it's, it's also kind of hard. Erlang is not exactly the most fashionable language. If you, I mean, even if you ask a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people would argue otherwise. But it's not, uh, it's not exactly pretty. Um, well, you know, to do a callback to my, to my Vegas trip, it's, it's funny. It's kind of like go to the roulette table or, or blackjack, whatever, and you, it's like chasing the number. You know, you see your number come up, and you're like, oh, I came up, I'll bet on it. And I was having a friend who was telling me I was stupid, which happens very often. He was like, it's all random odds. Like, chasing the numbers doesn't help you. And it's sort of like that, oh, maybe my startup will be successful if I used Erlang. And it's like, I know some extremely successful, and this is going to make people cringe, but extremely successful startups, and all their core infrastructure is in PHP, and they're killing it. And that's what works for them and their team. So uh, your, language, your language will never d- define the success of your of your business. It may, yeah, it may define totally. how but it's so funny whenever it happens. It's like, oh, we use fourth. Okay, everybody, let's learn how to use fourth. It's like a prologue. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen GitHub going around talking about how great Rails is. I mean, I know they used to, but like after after seeing enough unicorns, we haven't seen them really plug it in. I mean, it's not it's not a big deal. It's like if you make a product that's good enough and works, and it's not down all the time. You don't care what just, the language is. Yeah, don't don't really care. But at the same time, until it gets sold to Facebook for X billion. Yeah, exactly. And then you can. And then people care. Yeah, exactly, exactly. All right, next up, configuration management, self-service tools, and doing that well. Next up on the Ship Show. Welcome back to Ship Show. So for our main topic tonight, we're going to be talking about configuration management and this kind of dichotomy between configuration management as a discipline and calling for sort of best practices in various parts of things, but then sort of the dichotomy between kind of the free-for-all that you want to increase your agility and velocity, get people out of the pipeline and get the gates out of the pipeline. How do you do that effectively? So Yusuf, this was a topic you wanted to discuss, and I wanted to clarify before we kind of jump into it. When you're talking about configuration management, uh, it seems like you're, I mean, a lot of this stuff is going to apply across the board, but talking more about code line management. Like source code, not so much like configuration management when we usually talk about Chef or Puppet, right? Or, or yeah, the, well, it, I mean, it could be both, but yeah, I am, I'm, I am, you know, definitely talking about you know more code line, code line management, yeah, and traditional and configuration management. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, uh, you know, like you said, uh, traditional configuration management, um, you generally have like a CM team or a set of CM teams that are responsible for doing things like uh, uh, developing code line policies, processes for things like how to branch, when to tag, when to release tag, or when to do like release candidate branches or feature branches or whatever you want to call them. So the idea is kind of like today, now that we have all these more, I guess, what you could consider next generation type terms like continuous delivery, 
agile or whatever you want to call it, can you still have the traditional CM team that does all that stuff? Or maybe we need to look at a new, you know, different approach. And what I'm proposing is looking at something kind of along the lines of self-service. Self-service is not a novel concept, but it's something that other areas of, like in IT, they have uh, self-service resetting passwords, for example. A lot of companies have that. Instead of having to call somebody up to uh, reset your password, you can actually go in and, you know, kind of do that yourself. Yeah, but so that that's interesting though, right? Because there's all the, you know, you look at some of these more complex hacks and they involve exploiting that self-service, the password reset. So you see this with two-factor authentication and all these things. So I don't want to discuss that at length, but the point being that as soon as you set up sort of the self-service mechanism, a lot of times that's like a hack point to kind of get around the process, which is the interesting sort of tug of war between these sort of two concepts. Sasha, you had mentioned too, because you're big into evangelizing the self-service, you know, uh, getting the dev teams what they need in terms of of being able to serve themselves and and get them the stuff they need. What are your thoughts on on this sort of, I mean, because CodeLine, you know, uh, I, I think we've all been there, and I know certainly uh, Seth in the gaming industry, because we've talked about these big, huge merges we've had to do. If you kind of mess up CodeLine stuff early, it's a bear to fix later. It's really oh, hard man. to, yeah. So it's, I, and I see this actually a lot in startup land, where it's like, hey, we've got master on GitHub. Everybody kind of pushes there, and then they clobber each other with some force pushes, and that's fun times. And then they figure out feature branching, and then you've got a team of four people or you know 80 people or whatever and then you're looking at the git branching or in git we often talk about the code line of you know because a commit can be on various branches the way that git models code lines and it's just a mess have you ever seen that git that thing in git k where the code lines are like crossing all over each other in the different colors so uh yeah seth and sasha i mean how do, you know how do you address that sort of trend is moving to self-service but if you get that wrong early on it's painful Pain it's, bill. it's really pain it's really really hard it's so I've not actually had to deal with it I've not had to deal with it in in the git world or github world um, mm-hmm. and I've also it's also good kind of been something I don't understand how it's supposed to work. it's just it, for me it was it was a lot clearer when I, when we were you know when I was in the industry using perforce and it was just mm-hmm. codeline it was very I mean we there were definitely some some past mistakes as you so things that had to be cleaned up or were things that you knew were broken and it was either we have to actually put forth a lot of effort to fix this properly or we just pave over the branch or something like that and just pretend it didn't happen. Um, <laughs> which I care. Right, exactly, which we did. We would pave over branches and just kind of like basically re-silver the branch based on a known good point and just say, yeah, anything that happened before, I mean, the change sets were still there, but then we just nuked everything because we didn't know how to fix the history properly. But I've mm-hmm. seen, uh, when you talk about cleaning it up after the fact, when, when I was at Vigil, we had to, we uh, one of the, my coworkers, it was a, basically we, we went into the Perforce database and just basically rewrote it with said Repo like, moved, surgery. Yeah, repo surgery. We moved everything yeah. around. To, we wanted to separate out the repos and uh, we wanted to separate out kind of like top level stuff. So we wanted, instead of being like slash slash depot, we had slash slash each game title. Mm-hmm. Um, rewrote the whole thing, but it was also tedious and time consuming. It took about 48 hours to move all the data around. And that was mm-hmm. just to make development more sane so we could make everything more modular. But the pain involved, I mean, it was worth it. I mean, because it, it made our build system a lot more flexible in the end. But well, it, it was like scary. You're... Like, it was, it was yeah. you know, you're doing surgery. <laughs> yeah, it seems like you're telling a story that I hear all the time, which is when you start doing this with startups, it's like you don't really have a supported 
branch, right? I mean, you don't have right. like a sustaining support branch, right? And maybe you're not even doing releases to customers, right? And and so you can do that for one to two years. The team is small, and then at some point, this all becomes very important with trying to manage code lines, and that's where it sort of comes in and blows up. Where Yusuf, you were talking about like what what services are we talking about? We're talking about creating your own branches, creating your own release tags, doing builds, and all of that kind of stuff. And that's something you don't need for a couple. Years. Well, yeah, and that's the other. Thing. When I came into these giant industries, it was, it was definitely, it was, it was weird because you you came in at the tail. So you came like I came in in most of those cycles like either two years in, so after at least one game had been released, or in another case it was I think four years in. And these were mature branches. Now they had their problems, you know, the, all the historical problems, but a lot of the effort was focusing on making things a lot tighter and focusing. You know, the teams were getting smaller at this point because the projects were not necessarily winding down, but they're getting they're in maintenance mode, and so. It was a different set of priorities because I hadn't been there in the the Wild West days, where if you looked in the history, it was just scary. Like right. if, you, if you actually did the P4, if you did the uh, the visualization tool for source control, gorse. Um, oh yeah, actually very easy. So I, I use that on branches, and it's no. it's amazing. So use that on a giant game repo, and it is one of the most <laughs> beautiful things because you see the team grow. So you see like the kind of the velocity of the project, and you see all the branches, and see branches spinning out wildly like uh, nebula arms, and then being destroyed because somebody's like, nope, that was a bad idea. Right. Um, and it's well, really, Do you think that's more prevalent do. with Git? Because there's, you'll see people publish their feature branches or personal branches to GitHub, which is fine. But then mm. as the repository of record, those get destroyed because people may not want right. all of their stuff out there on, on GitHub. Totally. A lot of, it's funny, a lot of this goes into code line management in general. And the elephant in the room is, do we even care about that in certain size teams anymore, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I actually, as an aside, I thought we were talking more about self-service tooling, not SCM, which puts me to sleep. I'm sorry. No, 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 that's fine. And, and actually, so here's the thing. I, I think that's a really good point. We were talking about, I mentioned this because Yusuf, you brought up like doing own branches, release tags, sort of build infrastructure, but but it is sort of self-service. Now, you know, a lot of times we talk about self-service and we're talking about um, and it doesn't really matter that it's configuration management or code line policies. Really the fundamental question, it sounds like Yusuf, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you're asking is we want to do all of these self-service, provide these these services for developers basically get what they need but in a lot of cases there are best well I don't want to say best practices good practices and things that we want to sort of enforce and that was actually the word you used which I wanted to talk about in a sec yeah. um, no and I like these... that idea a lot the whole idea of not just enforcing but I mean most people want to be told what to do when they're not when they're using something that is not specifically their thing right when they're having to use peripheral tooling to whatever it is that they're doing they'd right. rather be told what they need to do and been be given the tools to do it without having to think about it too much. So I think it's okay to want to enforce certain behaviors. It doesn't mean so, that you have to police them so much as just make it easy to do stuff. Okay, so I want to actually dig into that because it surprises me that you say that from what was the, there was the episode like maybe three or four episodes ago where we, oh we were talking about Jenkins. We were talking about, remember I asked you, does the tool, because remember you, we were talking about you can throw the, the script for the job into the web form and that's like a rookie 101 mistake but like everybody does it because it's it's just easy, and I was like, "Should the tool not let you do that?" And, and so this applies to like all the infrastructure type stuff we build. You were like, "No, they just are trying to get their job done." And so I actually yeah, thought you were and gonna, I actually I thought feel the gonna, same I, way. But I thought you were gonna I thought you were gonna say when we use the word enforce, like you've already sort of lost because nobody wants those teams to be enforcers. And you said policing. Well, nobody so. wants to have to be an enforcer or a, or a policer, but you want to make it easy for people to do the right thing with the least amount of effort. When you make and so Mike Nygaard says this. This is one of my favorite things ever. 
whatever. When you make the right thing easy to do, a lot more people will do it. Right. And so it's not so much about enforcing or policing, but enforcing behavior without making it restrictive and time-consuming and, and tedious. So that's but, why, and that's why when we, when I thought we were going to talk about more than just SCM, I think about all of the dev tools that are just such a huge pain in the ass for devs to use. And like, they just get told to cope and then they spend like days and days trying to figure out why stuff doesn't work and it's got nothing to do with their core their directive, core. which is write right. the f code. Right. So yeah, anything that stops distracting them from writing the code is good as long as it's not, as long as it's not wasting their time. Yeah, but I've run into this dichotomy all the time where it's, you know, there's sort of some infrastructure stuff and the easy thing is easy. But then the developer's like, well, I just want to do it that way. And you're like, well, first of all, if you look at SCM principles, or I, I could see this with like Chef Cookbook principles or whatever, it's mm -hmm. like, this is going to bite you in these 18 ways and you don't want to do it that way. And this is why we actually don't support that. And then it's like, well, I don't care. I just want to do it that way. And I guess, are you, is the implication that is. A it depends on what my job is that week. You know, it depends on what my job is that week. Am I going to have to support the stuff that they're writing? Well, then I might argue about that a little bit harder. Are we part of a startup and we're just trying to get shit out the door? Then I might not argue about it quite so much. I mean, it really, a lot of it is context. And I say that all the time, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Everything we do is context. And right. the real thing is, is am I going to have to support something? Is this something that I care passionately about? Am I going to have to have 10 other arguments about 10 other things with these guys about things that are way more important than whether or not they're directly migrating their bash scripts into Chef, which, you know, I hate. But, I mean, if they've got 10 other things that they're doing wrong that are worse, then i got to pick what I hate, what I care about, too. So. Sure, but so then the question is, then when do you stop becoming a startup? Which is always, like, the analogy I always give is the airport analogy is, like, the uncontrolled field to, you know, Palo Alto Airport versus San Francisco International. Mm -hmm. And those energies all either relate to a huge infrastructure or, or small or even medium-sized, whatever, right? But I think that's the thing is you have this thing where people want to act like it's a startup when the teams... Uh, and you, let's, let's talk so, about this. Well, so you, that's you, a priority you, thing, right? So I want to... I can, I have a I have an anecdote to to illustrate. Okay. Uh, I was at a client a while ago, and I don't want to give any time frames because it will probably give away who it was otherwise. And <laughs> they brought a sysadmin in to do a lot of the the work, and they were kind of startupy, and that they were trying to like to get a new thing off the ground and stuff. And I was in there doing chef stuff, and they brought in this sysadmin to do a whole bunch of stuff. And one of the first things he wanted to do was cut off developer access to all the prod machines, like straight up turn it off. And I was like, that's great in theory, but unless you can give them like the other ten tools they need to fix things when they're broken, you can't just do that. I know it might be a security breach or a security risk, but you can't just come in and turn everything off and call it a day because that's not going to let things fly. So are, are they a startup or aren't they a startup? Well, I don't know. But are they not going to be able to get their work done if you turn off all their access to these prod servers? Probably not. So you have to be able to actually have priorities about what's important and what you're going to do to give people the tools they need to get their job done if you want to take away something. Uh, so that's an interesting point because you, Yusuf, you actually kind of brought up this about where this responsibility falls within different teams and as you grow how this because you were talking about SCM teams that all they do is branching and strategy and code line management and right. I've been on when companies get really really big I've that been on so teams awful that, no I actually <laughs> love that yeah I, I love that job it's, a, it's so it's a awful it's awful there are a lot of, lot of uh, companies that have teams like that I mean, yeah well, and I, I believe I, it it just sounds I would love to, to be on a team like that because think about it if you've got and I, I, I had a friend who did this at VMware and he was on a team of like three or four people and their job was support the Perforce server and then also 
write all of the scripting and tooling, and actually it was very applicable. Oh, to this. that makes more sense to me. Scripting and tooling, like, yeah. It was scripting just and tooling around like locking branches, so like pro uh, program managers could lock branches when certain products were about to release, but they didn't have to talk to the SCM team to do it. Mm -hmm. um, they like create branches. The all the tooling around that was their job, and I and I I would have liked that job because that I, actually I, sounds a little more interesting because that again is that's tooling and that's interesting. Yeah, but there's that whole policy. It sounds like they were curating the code, which to me would be boring. Yeah. Oh no no no. It's not the so I do agree with you, and you still see companies with this. The, you the, do the, you do it. You can't. Yeah, you can see it'll it'll overlap sometimes. You'll you'll. Well, well I was going to say the integration engineer, which you've played, yeah. Seth. Right. This oh, role yeah. that all they do is like I'm going to merge stuff repeatedly, and that'll be fun, and I'll oh I'll get God. my go-to lines. Well, the the problem up. is they they usually in in those kind of places I was at it was they had the idea like there was maybe like a central perforce team that would deploy the perforce servers, but then after that there was like instead of it wasn't a team that was the problem it was one dude and it was okay you manage the perforce server you also manage the code line stuff so all the you know branch management merging integration engineering type stuff and then oh by the way you also know Linux right so you get to do all the random servers all the configure it was just like it was the problem was it was four different jobs so that's that's the problem you get when you don't have the dedication to actually having a team when it's a proper team like that it's great right um, right yeah that's actually what I wanted to talk about though so I, I totally am on board and, and understand and agree with your statement Sasha about if you're going to take something away you you, you have to horse trade you have or to if you want to enforce a certain kind of behavior you have to make sure that it's not interfering with current functionality and ability to do things right but so here's the thing though to do that a lot of times if you look again at the entire organization as a system it would cost the organization less to have a team that automates some of this stuff and makes the common stuff really easy and, and automated and a tool the self-service to create branches or tags or lock branches and tags and do all of that stuff but the, the hard part is making the argument because we're we're scaling the organization we need to do that so I need to take these things away so that I can have people kind of go down the right path so I can scale that and I talk about this in my we brought up the internet talk I talk about this in terms of approach plates where all of that process is already defined for you and that's how they scale but I see consistent underinvestment in headcount for those teams whereas because it's like well we don't want to have a build team or an SCM team or whatever because it's too expensive but in reality when you have all these developers fumbling around with it every single time they have to do it you're paying that cost anyway and it seems like then it goes to well it, it gets characterized as constraining the developers as mm -hmm. opposed to encouraging them to listen to this person who's been doing it for 10 years so well, how do you so make that business case that seems to be the things that I've heard. Well, I don't know that you can. First of all, you have to have someone who cares enough to make the case that you should do that. And you are going to find a lot of that in, one, startups and stuff because they're too busy having a good time with their freedom. Starting up. <laughs> right. And making the business case is much harder. And that's what I was saying at this last place. All he wanted to do was go in and, and like drop a big anvil on their work so that they couldn't get anything done. And I'm like, that's not realistic. You can't expect that to be yeah, that's the way. Yeah, that's So that's the problem is that there really isn't a business case and you end up with that classic silo conflict stuff going on again. And, and I don't know that there really is a good way to fix it, except that one person has to have a concern, and they have to have valid reasons for the concern, and they have to offer a way to get to the point where you can have something else. So, yeah. I mean, it's really just a matter of having that priority and championing it. And if you don't have somebody who actually can do both, then, or if you can't see both sides of this discussion, then most of the time, so I'm kind of getting turned around in my words here a little bit, but most of the time, uh, and I ha I've heard this too from devs, it's like the whole devs being on call thing, and devs being accountable for their code, and stuff like that. Most devs want to be accountable for their code. They don't want to like write shit and then dump it on a server and then leave it for everybody to hate forever. And the trouble is is that they don't aren't given the bandwidth and time management to like be accountable. So like 
like that whole devs being on call and supporting their code, most of them would do it if there were a way for them to realistically do it. I, a lot of them do want to be accountable for their stuff. So it's the same thing. If you have a, a legit reason for whining to, I don't know, lock down the way you do source control or take away root access in production, I believe me, I've had people threaten to take away root access and I'm like, would you please? Because then they aren't going to call me at 3 a.m. for that snoop. Right. Oh, yeah. They're going to call oh, the network team, yep. right? So like most people are reasonable people and they want to be reasonable. You just have to have like a rational argument for the stuff that you want, I guess. Well, you know? yeah. No, yeah, I keep thinking about this because I've, I've sort of run into that same thing as well more and more where it's like I'm wondering if there's like there should be like a half-day course on kind of software stuff for more for like management leadership from the standpoint of like actually looking at the system and the costs associated with that because I mean maybe I'm far out there and maybe this is not a problem but I always see the infrastructure team seem to be underinvested in. You know, the ratio, uh, there was a metric that... Um, it's hard to find good people too to do that stuff. I mean, everybody well, finds the right code. It is, but, but that's even that... Take care of the servers. Yeah, but that's, that's a different argument. You know, I find people trying to do well, hey, let's have one build engineer support 40 developers. Yeah. And that's just not going to fly. And right. and those curves actually flatten, those growth curves flatten out. You know, if you have 2,000 engineers, then you might have 20 build engineers, but that's because you've scaled the infrastructure. This all goes back to that whole startup thing. If you've got 40 people and one build engineer, they're chronically going to be behind. So, I mean, a part of it is convincing to get like that, the headcount to do it. But then the other part is I see a lot, um, and I actually work a lot in this space, is like, you know, you get someone in there that's doing the day-to-day -day stuff, and they are supporting like Jenkins crashes once every week, and this other thing crashes once every week. So like their job is like to monitor Jenkins and maybe try to get some some monitoring around it, automated monitoring. But they're like that's the fire they're putting out. Sorry. And it seems like th we've gotten away from this whole idea. And we were talking about this in the upgrade episode about we've gotten away from like you've got your main line where you're developing features, and you got, you have your sustaining line where you your customers have that. I think it's the same for SCM teams, build teams, even you know infrastructure support teams. You need to have someone that is doing day-to-day -day support and operating those services, and you need to have someone that's Greenfield's future building that infrastructure, and I think a lot of times that gets globbed together in one team, and what always wins? What always wins, yeah, right? it always does. It so, but the other thing yeah. we get, too, with this being rational approach to things is the idea that I was at another client earlier last year where they were enormous, and they were trying to get back to a place of let's be reasonable human beings and not lock down everything in the world. And it's the same kind of idea that if you're reasonable, you can come up with all kinds of ways that actually make sense to do things. Like their idea, they actually had a compliance person come in and talk to the people I was coaching with Chef to talk about how the compliance team doesn't want to actually cripple them. They want to work with them to figure out best ways to do things as opposed to just like mindless compliance rules and stuff. Well, so I thought those... that was really... They um, want to work with them to get, they have to get their job done too, right? Yeah, but and, and, and a lot of times compliance uh, and like, you know, same thing with like security and stuff is is very by rote and by, by the numbers and without a lot of thought into why things are the way they are and how they can actually like make sure that things are working as opposed to just rules are being followed. So right. it's actually something that's fairly rare in big companies, that mindset of how can we make things work without uh, crippling the people that are trying to do the work. Yeah. yeah. No, you, get, you get your silos in those. I mean, I've, I've, that's yeah. that. But you get your silos, and then once the silos are established, it's not about. It's no longer about helping each other. Yeah, I had that. Yeah, well, where was where was like here's 
you're the dev team and you're the ops team. And that was, you know, one of those, like, if, if you went over and asked nicely, they were like, hey, I, I want to make your lives easier. They're like, why, why are you being so nice to us? Are you good? Like, where's the knife? Is, is somebody behind yeah. me? Right. Um, well, and, and so to that point, and this is a, a slight tangent, but I promise I'll bring it back. I was talking with a friend about the net. There was a Netflix article, I think, in the Harvard Business Review. I'll try to dig it up. That was talking about their HR policies and how they just the, we a lot of the stuff that we actually talked about in the episode that we we had Netflix on and their culture. And the friend was saying Netflix looks like a bunch of jerks because the article talked about the story about how Netflix as a company changed. So they went to these two different people. One of them was a QA engineer that refused to automate things because they just wanted to do black box testing and that was their thing and they didn't want to automate things. And they basically said, here's a severance package. Like we've changed as a company. You have not changed with us and we you need Obviously you know, we're not a good fit anymore. We're not right. And so he was like, Netflix is a bunch of jerks. And I'm like, why? I would much prefer that over I need to make up a bunch of compliance rules that you're going to break because I know you're going to break them because you just won't follow them. And then I have a bunch of documentation that I can then go use to get you out of the organization. So what's interesting about that is that sometimes I think a lot of, and and this is kind of off the path of like self-service stuff, but to do self-service tools, you need to have you need to automate them. And to automate them, you need to have the process or the policy. And you're right, Sasha, especially in big companies. I can think of another example where there is all of this process and policy even around communicating to certain people because that person, and I don't know why they couldn't, uh, yeah, I don't know why it was so difficult to sort of address this issue head on, but there was all of this policy around, we we have a whole ticketing system because of the way this particular, the team did their job and it, they had a couple of engineers in there that, that weren't meshing well with the rest of the team and they were an infrastructure support team. And we could, so it's, it's just funny that we couldn't mm-hmm. address that issue, so we had to come up with all of this policy and process around it. And what's funny about that policy and process, you can try to automate that stuff, but it's really obvious when you're trying to automate around a people problem because this yep. automa- it's, it, you're not automating like rote steps. You're automating this sort of thing where it's like, well, it's in a bug tracking system, but then it still is notified. You know, somebody is notified, so then it's not really automating it because there's still people involved. It's weird. You can sort of tell that automation that was bolted on, not not just simple automation. It was so- trying to solve a cultural problem, yep. which if uh, you tr- address that, it would be much better. I had I had to do that once because executives for a game company that is no longer around, they refused to click on a link in an email. They didn't want to get emails about builds and then click on a link and download it from us. They forced me to push builds to them to, through some arcane like FTP. And no, no, it was it was this it was actually this service like you actually download this client. No, it was just, it was even more, it was just it was gross and I can't remember the name it was called, but I had to automate this whole thing on the end of my build. I spent 90% of the build, like, you know, the kind of that morning, those first few hours, and you're, well, at least with this was nightly build, so it was like first hour, so we were like, you know, checking on build fires. Mm-hmm. Uh, 90% of my time was troubleshooting this one process that was automating around a people problem. It actually, it was completely unnecessary that I do things this way. Right, automating but, around a people problem, yeah. But it was a people problem, because yeah. if they had just clicked the link and downloaded it from my server that was serving everything HTTP, they would have, it would have been easy, and everyone would have been happy, but... Yeah. That was well, so one thing I actually wanted to talk about that because because I I sometimes struggle a little bit with this and it's it's due to my background. Right? I was a release engineer for ten years, and a lot of the lean slash DevOps thinking on this. I was actually talking with uh, Damon Edwards. Actually, we we were chatting about this a couple days ago or last week about the fact that 
fundamentally, removing hurdles, removing roadblocks is a big part of this. You know, you want to remove the number of gates and checkpoints that a build has to go through to get out to the customer or bits or whatever code has to go through to get checked in. You want to minimize those. And especially when we talk about self-service tools, a lot of times that gets heard, since I was a release engineer and Seth, you probably have this too, where it's like, oh, you want to get me out of the way. And then it goes to, but I, I'm valuable. I'm pretty. I'm valuable. I have <laughs> things to contribute. And that's kind of on the other side. We were talking about trying to make the business case for the executives. A lot of times I struggled with that still where it's like it comes across as we want to get you out of the way, which then goes to the dot, dot. We want to get you out of the way, dot, 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 which gets translated to we want to get you out of the way because you, you contribute nothing to the process. <laughs> and and, so and so I how do we how do you resolve that like how do you detangle that with teams that are like here we basically want to get rid of you like SCM well, teams, I'm, you know? yeah I'm gonna go I don't know let me hear and, and, and say you know where's the benefit or ask brother where's the benefit in having a team of CM people that are just answering or handling tickets that, oh uh, branch this or tag that you know I don't well this that's I think that's a, that's part that goes back to a company cultural problem where they've they've actually misidentified what the team is supposed to or you know given them here's your job but here's you know it's 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 a misidentification of the sure the but, but it's kind of related to the question I think that Paul's asking about like how do you you know what do, you know what do you do with that particular role like what do you so I, I think the the point, or I guess the point that I'm trying to make with the whole self-service thing is that you know, automation is supposed to automate or, or the, the things that are being repeated, right? You're not supposed to, um, well, the, the idea behind automation is not to replace the thinking aspect of whatever it is that you're, you're doing. So maybe figure out what that thinking aspect is and then the stuff that has to get repeated and then just automate that and define the role as that thinking part. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you were saying what's the point of having that team and... and no, no, I'm not, no, I'm not, I'm not saying what's the point of having the team. I'm saying, I, I think, you know, today with the, the, the push to for things like continuous delivery and lean and, you know, all these kind of pros or, or, or sort of uh, things that, you know, allow you to push software out quicker that is it valuable to have a team that just does tagging and branching? Right? I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know that I see a well, value that's a, in that. That's a scale question. If you've got 50,000 developers and you've got a team of five people that are responsible for coming up with some semblance of manageable code management, then yes, that's, I think that's, I mean, it's a scale question. Does it make sense to have a team that is answering how to branch when you have a startup of 10 people? No, it doesn't. So in some sense, I, it, there isn't an answer to your question unless you know sort of the context, but the point I was trying to make is you were saying about like does it make sense to have that team or or what is the value that that team adds and I'm sure Seth again you probably run into this with gaming where people are like oh I want to create a branch and the first creating a branch is easy get, <laughs> get makes that super easy merging it back in is hard I yeah. again get with get it's super hard and in terms of you have to do it all the time so you kind of get somebody once said you get really good at merging because you have to do it all the time with get so the point is Yes, I was a roadblock to you creating a branch. And the roadblock was this organization is not just about you, single developer or single team. It's a system. And is the cost of creating that branch to the rest of the system going to be more or less than if we don't create that branch? Or is there a better way that you don't know about Git or Perforce to do that? And well, when how, you, and when you get often? rid of those people, you lose basically all of that experience and knowledge. And that's sort of the question. And, and then they think, well, do you give a shit about any of that? Sure, but how often are you having to answer that question, though? How, 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 how often are you having to answer that question? In big organizations, 
I would get asked, I want a branch. And and my first question would be like, why do you want the branch? And I would probably say 60%, maybe even 75% of the time, it's like, no, you do not need a branch for that. And, well, and we've so had what, this what conversation happens, a bunch, right? Yeah. But Helping what's people understand what they need rather than just giving them what they ask for. Right, but so what's yeah. interesting about that is, do you know where the industry went? They went to get where I don't, you don't need to ask me to create a branch. You can create a gazillion as you want. And that's fine. Like, I get that. That makes total sense. But then you've got the, the same problem you had before where the central repository now has 80 gazillion branches of people I don't – the organization does not care about their personal branches. Like, And then you have that mess to clean up. So, Sasha, to your point about helping people understand what they need, I guess maybe, again, that comes down to a, a cultural thing. It is. Because, it's just, it's because, just talking to each other. Well, so, no, no, no. But here's the thing. In that role – you are sort of being, I mean, you're sort of helping people, you're sharing knowledge, you're teaching people, and you are have to be assumed to be an equal peer on the team. And I can remember some, uh, I can remember the uh, VP of engineering at a place that I worked at a while ago saying, you are a service team. Do what well, I the think developers say. I think that's the very definition of a cultural problem, as Sasha yeah. said. That's, that is, that in and of itself is a cultural problem. If it's, it's because I've had that part where I'm, I'm only seen as the who says no. Right, right, exactly. Same, and thank you, yes. That's, but that was my job. I was hired to say no. That's right. actually what I, you know, I was hired to be the asshole when it came down to release time and you were trying to put it something in the staging branch and it didn't pass through all the other, you know, the normal branch promotion procedure. Right. And I well, was the one who said no. Yeah, um, no, no, and the funny thing about that is, is that's, I think, was also the disconnect culturally because I was not hired as the person to say no. But then, and we've probably all seen this, you go into an interview and they ask you, well, have you ever dealt with cleaning up branches or have you ever dealt with X? Have you ever dealt with the total shit show that an environment has become when no one said no? And you're like, yes, I have. And th and then what's unspoken in the interview is, how did you do that? Well, I said no. And then you get hired because they're like, oh, this person can fix it by saying right. no. But, you know, and, and so then it becomes, yeah, I was the that had to say no. But I do agree with you, Sasha, totally. And, and I've moved more actually more to, to kind of your worldview on this, you can't go in in the first three weeks or even three months because you just don't know enough about the context and the history to start ripping things up and doing this bull in the china shop routine. Like that totally doesn't work. And then you're just an asshole that says no, that yeah, breaks everything. Right? Well, I mean, but, then the, but then the other thing too about the, the you have to give something back. You can't just take stuff away and not give the, the self-service tools. Like yeah, that. I, it took me a, maybe a job and a half to realize that, but you're totally right. Yeah, you have, to, you, have to present a better, you have to present a better solution, but I think part of the, the culture, the, the, the endemic cultural problem is that the onus is somehow, is all of a sudden of this, this giant cultural shift in the organization is actually put on the shoulders of essentially a real engineer or a build engineer. They have to not only make better tools, they're working, they're working well outside their purview to make the organization better, and I think yeah. that's where a lot of the kind of uh, the the kind of you as you people want. I mean, you're naturally going to be inclined to silo because you basically have to like stick up for yourself and for like you know what you consider to be the right thing or maybe the better thing. And you're going to get told no. You're going to get told this slows us down. And well, you know, so 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 that's why I love 
uh, and I, I know it's come up a couple times already, but that's why I love the air, airplane analogy. And the reason is, is because if you think of, of infrastructure people as air traffic controllers, like they're responsible for the infrastructure, which is a system that everybody has to use. And so they often have to take a look at the entire system flow and all of you know all of that that aspect of how the software gets out the door whereas developers you said it perfectly sasha they only care about doing their thing and and getting their code in and what they're they only care about flying and landing their plane and that's yep. totally reasonable but i think when you have an infrastructure team or a t tools team that's doing self service tools and they are treated like a development team as, in so much as we just want you to do this tool but we're not going to give you any purview to look at the system like you were saying so right. that's you're basically paying a bunch of people to mostly fail they may come out with a tool people may be happy with it they may not it may not actually remove hurdles it's just going to be sort of painful right. you, if you don't set, let them be setting up yeah you're setting yeah. up people you're saying i want you to do this but really i don't want you to do this when it becomes inconvenient to me and that was that was, <laughs> yes. that, was that was that was honestly i think one of the biggest problems for me personally um, was was that was the that was the mentality of the organizations it was we want you to be a hard ass and say no and do this when it benefits us but when it actually comes down to the wire and you're be you know you're saying no or for the right reasons that's when we're going to overrule you because this is we've decided that it's in the best interest of the company right um, so a lot of people would say you're wrong you like if it's in the best interest of the company you should do it and here's what I would reply here's how I'd respond to that it's not like I didn't tell you this was going to blow up because we've all been in this industry long enough. It's like I told you six months ago this was going to blow up, and you're like nobody listened. And then now it's like, well, let's let's pull out all of the checks and balances we put in to make sure we don't screw up because no one listened, right? You know, it's something you sort of have to struggle with. I, it's funny. I, I'm curious if you any of us have seen this before. A new engineering manager got hired, and it was like, oh, we want to have better code quality, so we're going to make warnings like compiler warnings we're going to make those build failures on in continuous integration on Jenkins and everybody was like yeah that's great and they did it and the build was broken for I think three or four and three or four or five weeks because people would look at the build failure and they're like oh it's just a compiler warning I don't care about fixing it so it, and then it, somebody came in there and they were like I think one of the architects was like no let's turn this off right so it was this sort of like tug of war between well we want to want to do this but we don't really want to do this right well, that's, I mean that's that's all organizations they they all want to they all have an idea of what they want to be but there's also a you know the heavy lifting is, the heavy lifting is hard and and sometimes you know that takes yeah, it can be. Yeah. That's why it's important to put the right things in place to make it easier. And that's hard and you need people who are dedicated to doing that, not just people who do it in their part time in between like supporting stuff. Yeah, and that's why we yeah. have tools teams. And I straight up approve of tools teams and I wish you wouldn't call them DevOps teams, call them whatever the fuck you want. Just get a tools team out there. Oh. Don't don't call it please don't please don't call it DevOps. Love of God, team, but... Don't don't call it a DevOps team. Please don't. I well, think it I would love... be interesting to have a follow up episode on what how tools should be built to talk well, about self-service tooling themselves. You know, it's interesting, though, at that point about don't call it a DevOps team. Part of me wonders if, you know, we were talking about, you know, how do you convince people to get budgets for this stuff? And I wonder if that's the trick. You have to call it a DevOps team because then people are like, oh, I read the Gartner report on DevOps. Yes, let's get a team to do that. If that's what you actually have them doing and not just doing whatever it is that people don't know what it is. No, I know. That's what I'm saying. I wonder, you know, a lot of times we talk about it, and I've seen this, it's the DevOps team, but if they're doing tooling, maybe that's just a subversive culture hack in companies that the, the culture is slow moving. That's interesting to think about. So that's, anyway. that, of course, brings up the whole other thing that I always talk about, which is for like teams like that, dev is prod for them. Yeah. 
And it's yeah. a whole other like world of adventure. It's true. Well, uh, we'd be interested in how listeners have uh, struggled with this topic, whether or not they, the infrastructure and tooling they've worked on has been seen as a hurdle, whether or not they've had some successes maybe. Uh, we love, actually, I always love hearing the stories about, yeah, we want code quality, turn on the code coverage tool. Everybody ignore oh, the code coverage tool. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So uh, go ahead and email us, crew at theshipshow.com, or tweet us at Shipshow Podcast. Actually, we're talking about doing another DevOps, dear Abby. We'd love some fodder for that, so uh, feel free to shoot the stories this way and maybe we'll we'll talk about them in a DevOps Dear Abby segment which we're overdue for. Uh, so we'll be back in a moment here on the Ship Show. Welcome back to the Ship Show for our last segment tonight. We're going to do a book review or content review. I guess we haven't done one of those for a while. Uh, and I just finished reading this. It was actually something Jez Humble pointed me to when we were commiserating about something, and I found it fascinating. It's called uh, The Gervaisable, as in Ricky Gervais, or The Office According to The Office, uh, referring, of course, to the, the TV show, both the British and American version. It's written by a guy named Venkat Rao, and it looks like he does a lot of consulting with technology companies, but he's coming at it more from the uh, the management side of things. And the Gervais principle basically is, is talking about if you watch The Office and you really love it, but you never really understood why you loved it or why it resonated so much in so many of our situations, he basically explains it very well. And he uses the characters from the American version to sort of talk through that. He actually, and there's a couple of plot lines he refers to, so if you watched and enjoyed the whole American series, this would totally be familiar. But he basically breaks down companies into sort of three categories, uh, losers, clueless, and sociopaths. And uh, when he talks about losers, he's not talking about social losers, he's talking about sort of economic losers or you know people that made a bad economic bargain. And then he talks about how these different groups within a company communicate with each other, the different sort of language they use and, and the structure, and how that you can actually move between those groups kind of delves a little bit into that. It's all available free online. We'll put a link in the show notes. You can also get it on your e-reader. He actually will deconstruct. He has an extra essay in the ebook version where he deconstructs Office Space, which is which is fun to read. Uh, the reason I wanted to bring it up is because this was a really transformational essay for me. Like I said, it's 30 words, so it's not long to read. Uh, there's there's six parts. It's not long to, to take a read, but it's certainly worth it. You know, the, where it, one of the big things that he talks about is economic losers that then go above and beyond the work that they should and how those people are stupid. And uh, I can remember a, a position I was at where I was like working nights and weekends because I was like, oh, it's going to be great. And, and I was young and stupid and really, really enthusiastic. And not only was I an economic loser, but I was a stupid one because I was putting in all this extra time and effort for basically nothing. And he, again, develops those ideas further. But um, it was very interesting to see kind of how, how he modeled this. And again, it's free, so you can go read it online. It, it, at the very least, I think you'll find it interesting, uh, especially his use of the term sociopath and how he kind of sociopath has a connotation, and he, again, narrowly defines it. And then he also goes into a little bit about how organizations are birthed and how these three classes grow within an org and then sort of like a sun and implodes into a black star. So yeah, check it out, uh, the Gervais Principle or the Office According to the Office. 
quick conference shout out. Uh, we got the links in the show notes, so go look at them. Uh, we update them every show with the conferences that are upcoming. We also have a link to, I think it's devopsconferences.com, which has a more comprehensive list. Wanted to give a shout out Mountain West Ruby and JavaScript and DevOps is coming up in March. I'm going to be speaking there about DevOpsy things. That's in Salt Lake. Check that out. Um, and then also there's the AUSENIX release engineering. They're doing a release engineering conference, and their call for papers are open on that, uh, I think. They're open right now. Um, that's going to be, I believe, in Philadelphia, and we'll have a link to that. But if, if you're in the Usenix ecosystem, you do a lot of system and stuff, they are actually starting to look at release engineering. I guess the DevOps stuff caught on there, too. So, from San Francisco, this is Paul Reed signing off. From San Diego, this is Yusuf signing off. From Austin, this is Seth signing off. From the frozen tundra of Minneapolis, this is Sasha signing off. And we will see you all in a couple of weeks.